Welcome to our TMIT Research Testbed High Performer Webinar, Workplace Violence Number 4, Hunting and Howling in 2023. I'm Charles Denham. I uh, will be your MC and, and moderator today. Uh, we thank you for joining us. Uh, this is part of a series. For those of you that are on the podcast and want to go back to review this as a video, you may go to safetyleaders.org. For those of you that are watching live, you may go to safetyleaders.org in the upper right hundred quadrant of the landing screen. You can click on the register here and information and you'll be able to uh, access it. Also in future, for those that are watching this on an on-demand basis, uh, you may go to the tab on webinars and be able to uh, log on as well. So today we're talking about the concepts of hunting versus howling uh, the, and this very difficult time that we're facing now in workplace violence when we have people that are targeting us, we have people that are making lots of noise and chaotic, having kind of a chaotic impact on our organizations through social media uh, and targeted uh, targeted uh, digital marketing, as well as those that are posing physical danger to our organizations. And so uh, just uh, to be able to kind of address some of these, we'll show a short video. And for those of you, again, on the podcast, you may uh, be able to kind of join us uh, if you wish. Uh, and also we will have uh, transcripts uh, of the of not only the videos, but the whole program. There are more and more lethal force incidents that are capturing our headlines, from the murder of a beloved educator at the University of Arizona to the stalking and murder of a cardiologist at the Texas Medical Center in Houston, to the poisoning of caregivers and patients from an insider on a surgical team, to the senseless killing of teachers and school children at a church school. It's incumbent upon us to learn about hunters who take the path to violence and the howlers who create chaos and brand damage to organizations. The expanded definition of workplace violence by the Joint Commission that accredits hospitals has broadened the area of critical focus to include many of the emerging threats we are addressing in our community of practice with medical centers, universities, and schools. We always start off our programs by inviting uh, consumers, those from the public, patients for patient safety, uh, to kind of uh, help us focus our uh, attention on what's most important. And we're delighted to have uh, we're uh, delighted to have Jenny uh, 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 Jenny uh, Dingman join us today. She'll be uh, with us live a little bit later uh, in our program. Uh, we're delighted to have her. Uh, join us as uh, she has over the last 12 years. Uh, she has been um, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, individual. She's uh, uh, worked with us on numerous projects. She's a published author, uh, and she uh, has uh, helped with a very small group uh, who were actually able to generate uh, enormous impact through the HACS, the Hospital Acquired Conditions uh, program. And so we'll hear from her uh, briefly, but we thank Jenny for being part of our team, and we'll have her set our course. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind introduction. Really looking forward to today's program with regard to workplace violence. This is such an important issue in this decade in our country. 
I want to thank everyone for being here today and encourage you to share the recording with your friends, families, and colleagues. I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham. Uh, we have uh, a group of uh, wonderful speakers and reactors, uh, including uh, uh, Vicki King, who will be our main speaker today uh, with MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center and the University of Texas Police Department in Houston. Uh, John Nance will have a recorded uh, session uh, later on in our extended version, who's a JD, uh, a patient safety and aviation safety expert. Randy Steiner will speak shortly at the end of the program and address higher education. We'll also have comments from Casey Clements, who is the head of occupational safety, the director of clinical emergency medicine at, in Rochester, Minnesota for the Mayo Clinic. And we'll have Chief Bill Adcox live to react after uh, Vicki uh, speaks to us. Uh, we'll also have a recorded session for the, in our extended session from Dr. Greg Boats, who is both uh, faculty at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, as well as an adjunct clinical professor at the Stanford Medical Center, and also the medical director at the uh, University of Texas Police Department, of which uh, Chief Adcox is the chief and Vicki is an assistant chief. Um, uh, you may follow, and those of you that are on the podcast uh, can look at the slides and follow us on social media, which we won't cover uh, in any great detail today, but we just want to uh, focus you on our purpose, mission, and values. Our purpose is we'll measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Uh, our mission is to accelerate performance uh, solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. We try to live our values. I'm sure we fall short, but we always try to live the values of integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship, uh, which spell I care. Uh, and none of our speakers, either recorded or live, uh, have anything to disclose. We will not address product services or technologies uh, in the pharmaceutical or device space. And we have not, since 1984, when we initiated this program, we have not received any direct or indirect uh, or affiliated financial support for this webinar series uh, from uh, the healthcare industry, pharmaceutical, medical device area. We like to draw your attention to the fact that we started a community of practice, and we're so blessed to have Chief Adcox with us today and Vicki King, who have both been wonderful contributors to uh, our community of practice focused on emerging threats. These are the 30 or so emerging threats that will uh, keep our leaders and keep our leaders up at night. And workplace violence is one of those threats. And as we um, close today, we will share a video regarding the most updated video on the emerging threats community of practice and provide on the website an opportunity for you all to submit uh, uh, your um, interest in participating with it. Now, in the open vi opening video, we talked about the Joint Commission expanded definition of workplace violence, and we really recommend that you go back and watch our workplace violence one, two, and three. We've covered it in each one of those. Today, we're really talking about, um, about the, those outside players that are uh, either howling or hunting and can cause tremendous impact on our organizations 
And we won't be focusing on some of the softer or the expanded definitions, but critically important to do so. Um, you may go on to our website uh, to be able to focus on these uh, programs, uh, and they are all recorded both on podcasts and uh, they are uh, available as videos that you can watch from the web or your phone. We've also had prior webinars uh, in earlier uh, uh, earlier than 2023 that we think are that could be valuable as well. So just to set a bit of a context before our main speaker, who is uh, who is um, uh, 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 Vicky King, and who will be speaking to us regarding kind of a deep dive on a on a certain case to provide uh, us uh, some context. Uh, we'll show a short video that ties to uh, the uh, the slides that uh, I have up this moment, and they're the gun violence violence archive that records uh, certain um, uh, the uh, a certain uh, number of measures in terms of murders and mass casualty events. And so I'll show, share a short video uh, regarding that. The Gun Violence Archive just reported that we have had 226 mass shootings this year with 21 mass murder deaths. They are having a devastating impact on our country. These events capture the headlines. However, there are many more lethal force incidents that occur, including attacks with other kinds of weapons where bystander care can have an enormous impact on the survival and long-term viability of the victims. This is one of the reasons why we launched our MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program and have written a number of articles for Campus Safety Magazine, which we've posted for download on the Safety Leaders website. How Bystanders Can Save Lives in Medical Emergencies tells the story of how the MedTech program started. Our article, entitled Effectively Responding to Active Shooters in Healthcare Facilities, addresses the alternative to run, hide, fight, which is not possible in hospitals. Battling failure to rescue with rapid response teams addresses how we can build on the successes in patient safety with rapid response teams as we tackle lethal force incidents. Inadequate placement of AEDs and bleeding control gear could cost you presents the concept of the rising standard of care that raises liability if we're not prepared. Why AEDs should be placed to deliver three minutes from drop to shock for cardiac arrest and why bleeding control gear needs to be placed to deliver three minutes from shot to stop from a gunshot to stopping the bleed. So we must start to understand how to stop the hunters and the howlers from harming our organizations. All of the prior events are very instructive. There really is an evolving science that can help us understand the path to violence. So when we were running searches on this path to violence, we found a terrific video that our tax money has paid for that addresses the pathway to violence. And I think it's an excellent introduction to what Vicki uh, King will be sharing with us today. And it's a terrific resource. It's our taxes have paid for it. You don't have to worry about copyright issues and may post it on your own websites and use it to whatever purpose will help your organization. And I'll play that video and then we'll move on to our key speaker.
What could have been done? A question inevitably asked in the wake of a mass tragedy, this video seeks to answer by illustrating the pathway to violence, a six-step model for identifying suspicious behavior so that potential harm can be mitigated. We begin with former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis, who led the effort in examining what could have been done to prevent the 2013 Boston Marathon attacks. One of the things that we recognized after sort of doing a post-mortem on the, uh, on the Saniyev investigation was that um, he, Tamerlan had acted out in the mosque in Cambridge. Uh, on two different occasions he had objected and, and had arguments with the imam about uh, what the imam was suggesting. Uh, he, he wanted the imam to be more radical, to be uh, more in alignment with Sharia law and, and, and less uh, Western in the way that he was teaching Islam. If that imam had felt comfortable enough with us to call us and say, I don't know what to do with this guy, you know, they eventually ejected him from the mosque. Um, if at some point we had heard about that, it may have reactivated the FBI investigation. And whether it was his family or the community around him, if someone had reached out to us, it might have changed the whole trajectory of this incident. In my view, the first line of defense is that neighborhood that will detect that anomaly. You know, changes in behavior, withdrawal from the community. In the case of the older Tamerlan Sarnayev, he develops these ideas that this is being done to me because of who I am. It's important to tr get into that kind of nuance because narratives matter. When you're trying to uh, assess whether an individual is radicalizing or not, or on the path to radicalization, one could only hope for a model, if you will, to, a path to radicalization. The human mind obviously is complex, but there seems to be some general commonalities. So what are these commonalities and what can they tell us about potential acts of violence? Many experts agree that the key to understanding this lies within the pathway to violence. So the pathway to violence, which uh, was classically represented by uh, Calhoun and Weston's model, starts off with the, the presence of a grievance. And to that grievance, the person begins to attach the ideation for the use of violence or significantly disruptive behavior. From ideation then, the next stage, and, and we'll see increasing intensity of effort in it, is the, the planning stage. Now the person is thinking about the planning, the who, what, when, and where, the development of the, of the thought, of the plan, still at a conceptual level. The next stage then is the preparatory stage. What do I need in order to fulfill the plan, the means, the weapons, the tools, the equipment, the clothing? either that that is necessary to affect the plan or that that has a significant psychological or fantasy. That's where persons are trying to prepare the capability or acquire the capability. In Calhoun and Weston's model, then they talk about the breach, which is about probing behaviors, checking vulnerabilities within systems to see where the best entry points are, or escape points if that's uh, part of the plan, and then the attack or the implementation phase. Models, however, we need to keep in mind are not perfect representations of reality. They're approximations to give us a way of thinking about issues of, of 
uh, understanding the development. So an important concept in the pathway to violence is to not take it literally in terms of the sequence of events that are laid out. Um, and so it's important to look for those as milestones along the pathway versus concrete steps, um, like going up a linear staircase. So the first component of it, the grievance, uh, this is the broadest base. The good news about people with grievances is most are never violent or significantly disruptive before. Virtually all of us from time to time develops grievances about aspects of the people around us, our jobs, our family situations, life in, in general. Happens all the time, right? When you think about what is the definition of a grievance, right? It's a real or perceived wrong. Now, does everyone take a grievance and it goes further into violent ideation, uh, planning preparation, etc.? No, that's much less common. When you don't understand the cause for that person, why are they doing what they're doing, you don't know whether there was a place to intervene, right? Whether it's a mental health issue, right? Whether they've suffered a significant loss recently, whether they're under a significant number of multiple stressors have just kind of been piling on, and there was this place where they feel like, you know what, this is kind of my only option. You don't know that there isn't anything you can do if you don't know what the actual problem is. Lots of people have bad experiences, grievances, and let it go and move on. But a sense of fixation on the grievance or the need for resolution is an indication that this is a grievance that's a bit different than normal. So the next step is the ideation for the use of violence. Um, and there's a lot of influences on this. Again, when there's the fixation on either the grievance or the need for resolution or the thoughts about resolution through violent means, that's a concern enhancing aspect of the ideation. The person who obsesses and ruminates and continues to invest effort of thought and action uh, moving forward to that typically begins to think on a bit more grander scale. As we look at the tipping point between the idea to the action, the planning is really about the who, what, when, and where. The why come from the first two stages. Who would best satisfy who or what would most satisfy my fantasies? And then when I'm going to take action, who's available to me and are they vulnerable? The preparatory stage is preparing the capability, which involves both the skill and the will. The other things that are important in the preparatory stage is, is acquiring the means to fulfill the plan. Lots of us make plans and don't have this, the resources, the skills, or the will to implement the plan. And so what it would be necessary? Do you need locks and chains to secure doors to limit egress so there's more victims stay available to me for a longer period of time or to limit emergency services ingress so I've got more time. For me the programming the breaching is part of the attack and certainly uh, the reason for breaking out in the model is that there are some people that will do a preliminary probe or attempt to breach so that's part of what the probing is is testing the security you know how far you can get you know whether the guard really checks your security badge when you're coming through whether there's a metal detector or not understanding the potential indicators of those who may be along the pathway to violence is important but are there cases that show how reporting these behaviors have any effect? There's a whole database of them. So the U.S. Department of Justice has funded, it's now available online, the beginnings of it, and it is a collection 
of circumstances where individuals were expressing the ideation and developing the capacity to engage in acts of significant violence in schools and campuses and a few other workplaces. but the focus of the research through the police foundation is on school and schools and campuses mostly schools k-12 schools what we're finding is that there are literally hundreds of these cases. With an understanding of behavioral indicators, what can organizations do to mitigate potential violent acts? Warnings and indicators is really what is really what I think the question is. Individually, each one of these things do not add up to a, a threat, so to speak, but when they are put together in a collective, it gives you a uh, it gives you more confidence, perhaps, that there's something more to be looked at. What you don't want to do is create a system wherein um, uh, anonymous information can come in without context, or you encourage people to report uh, observations that are out of the ordinary, and then uh, they go into a black hole, there's no feedback, uh, and worse yet, that there would be no action. I use an acronym called VIEW, V-I-E-W. And I think, it's, I think it's reasonable, I think it's fair, and I think it fits in, in both worlds. So the V would be vigilance, all right? So every employee from the top down, regardless of the size of the organization, has to understand what normal looks like. That's called situational awareness, so that's the V. The I, in my acronym, stands for introspection. That's the ability to understand when, uh, when changes to normal might be occurring. The E I use to, uh, to represent engagement. That can mean fostering a mechanism that enables individuals to report when they see things that aren't in that uh, normal, normal status. And then the W I use to remind people about willingness to act. And that's probably where the biggest gap occurs in my mind. I think we, we do a decent job now because of the see something, say something par paradigm. Individuals are encouraged and often empowered to report things, but what we do about it thereafter is, is what happens. So that willingness to act, operationalizing and, and putting action into that is really the key follow-on. So that when somebody says something, you might be the one that has to do something. For more information, please visit the resources found at cisa.gov slash active-shooter-preparedness. These include tips on responding to a variety of emerging threats, a feature-length comprehensive emergency action planning video, and resources related to best practices for your organization and community. So this video, we think, is a terrific resource, and I think you'll hear uh, some great uh, reinforcement through the case study that Vicki will share with us. I'll just quickly click through some slides, and for those of you that are on the uh, podcast, Vicki will cover the topics, but I just wanted for our visual audience to know that uh, where this video is found, there are some wonderful resources that go through uh, a uh, sequential set of fact sheets of recognize, assess, de-escalation, de and report. Uh, they are really terrific. They're very well thought out. Uh, they really synchronize beautifully with the pathway to violence discussion that is ongoing. And it, they really give uh, a context and give an opportunity to have something uh, to kind of review with some real detail regarding what an escalating person looks like, uh, some great granular detail. They're very well constructed, graphically pleasing, and I think uh, they're very professionally done. I'm really uh, pleased that my tax money uh, was spent um, on these. Uh, they also uh, have addressed 
personal security considerations and went through uh, topics that might be uh, really important for uh, those of us, uh, behavioral indicators uh, uh, for owners of businesses and, and what personnel can use, uh, personal security measures terrific list of uh, more than uh, more than 12 great uh, items that uh, staff uh, uh, can uh, can review so um, without further uh, ado I'd love to have uh, Vicki King who's been a frequent speaker and especially uh, a wonderful expert on this topic she's the assist presently the assistant chief of police at the University of Texas Police Department in Houston over three decades, her career uh, included serving 27 years with the Houston Police Department, rising to the rank of assistant, assisting, uh, assistant chief and earning a master's degree in criminal justice uh, as chief of detectives, tactical support demand, commander and director of forensic services. She oversaw some of HPD's highest profile cases, including serial homicides, corruption, domestic violence, sexual assaults and gangline slayings. And so she has uh, also served uh, as an emissary to the Saudi royal family. Um, and for my money, is just one of the best uh, uh, folks that we could have to help instruct us and actually uh, dig deep into these case studies. And uh, I think she we're just so pleased to have you, Vicki, uh, uh, speak to us. And I'm going to turn over uh, the program to you and have you go ahead and project your own slides. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate that introduction. Um, experience is great, especially uh, gained uh, just because you get older. So uh, here we are. We're going to, to jump into this topic today. Uh, I'm going to turn off my video if I can. Um, that way we can I can focus on um, the presentation. And what I want to do is frame this um, conundrum that we have in in healthcare, especially, we are bombarded with uh, a number of different personalities, um, not just colleagues, but the patients that we serve, and then the, the the family members and those in the community who seek out our uh, hospital, maybe for sanctuary, um, uh, homeless folks. Uh, we'll do that on uh, more than one occasion. Um, uh, but it, it's a place of healing and health, and we want to be there. But every now and again, we will begin to get pushback from some of these more problematic individuals. And trying to discern the difference between someone who's intent on harm versus someone who is just venting or disruptive in the workforce, uh, to our healthcare administrators um, who, who seem to suck all the oxygen out of the room. And we all know we've had experience with those folks. When do they transition or evolve uh, into a predatory type of targeted violence event? And so what we wanna do is uh, focus on a couple of cases that, that we hope will help drive this conversation and illustrate it. We're not trying to make everyone threat assessment professionals in uh, the short amount of time that we have to share here. But what it does is we wanna introduce the audience to this concept that there are mechanisms for triaging out your cases, assessing your cases, 
and then escalating pro protocol, just like you do in medicine, uh, to get the help that you need to address a, uh, a situation. So the video that we just saw referenced the pathway to violence. And this pathway to violence was developed um, by some of our colleagues, some of the founding members of the threat assessment process, um, uh, uh, Stephen Weston and Frederick Ted Calhoun. Uh, they collaborated on a number of works dealing with threat management, and their work is considered foundational, not just uh, in the video that you saw, but in the entire process of threat assessment and threat management. So it begins with a grievance, moves through that violent ideation, um, that research planning for an attack, the pre-attack preparation, the probing and breaches, uh, those uh, if you ever get a situation that escalates to that point, you need to be on high alert and, and initiate all available resources uh, to derail um, that um, targeted attack event. And Reed Malloy, who is another icon of the field, he adapted uh, the pathway of the violence to show these two arrows going up and down, the escalation versus de-escalation, because human beings and the environments in which we live are dynamic. And so there's an ebb and flow to some of these events that occur over time. And if you can recognize when you're successful in de-escalating and bringing someone back, uh, versus those actions or triggers that may be pushing someone toward an act of violence, uh, then you're going to be more successful in mitigating some of these events. So let's uh, move and talk about identifying the hunter versus a howler. And so how do you know who is that keyboard chaos creator? versus someone who is intent on committing an act of targeted violence. And uh, Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, he was a stalker um, that, that plagued and, and really paralyzed communities uh, in fear. Uh, what's the difference? What's the makeup of these two uh, folks? Who are the ones that just like to lob um, um, really caustic, statements, um, uh, veiled threats, and the, and the like, uh, versus someone who's actually going to go out and, and hunt uh, and try to um, regain control over their life or to um, redress a grievance. So what we want to do is we want to recognize those indicators that someone's in need of support or intervention. And these include stressors, triggers, and concerning behaviors that are commonly linked uh, to the pathway to violence. So what are the types of violence that we're talking about? And I, I referenced uh, Reed Malloy and his um, iconic work, and, and he really defines violence in two categories, effective violence. And just to give you an example, I mean, you can see the attributes of it. Um, here on the screen, but effective violence is that momentary flash. It is that, that visceral response to a stimuli that you consider either offensive or dangerous. 
and, and, and the best example I can think of, because all of us can relate when we are driving on a freeway, when we're driving on a roadway, everything seems to be going okay. And then all of a sudden someone out of nowhere comes over and cuts you off and makes you slam on your brakes to take quick, decisive, defensive action to save yourself and save your vehicle and your passengers. And in that moment, the person who caused this event has evoked a visceral response in us. You may say some choice words, you're gonna grip that steering wheel a little harder and you're going to wish for swift and sure justice, whatever that looks like. So that's very different. It's primal, it's emotional, it's defensive. Uh, and, and it is, um, other types of violence, you know, arguments that escalate, they fall into that effective violence category. Targeted violence is much different. In a targeted violence event, this is someone who has, a, who has developed some sort of grievance. They've thought about it for a great deal of time, and now they've decided that they're going to begin preparations to act. And it is a process. It is it has, it's very unemotional. When you see serial killers, when you see targeted violence events, you don't see the active shooter all emotional and running around and frantic. It is methodical. It is intentional. It is goal-oriented. And it is very specific to the target. Now, the interesting thing about this is that um, even though there's a specific target for the violence, now the violence can be targeting a person, a group of people, or a particular iconic um, uh, symbol of something that they hate. Timothy McVeigh targeted the, uh, the FBI building in Oklahoma City. Uh, he didn't care who was in that building he was targeting the government and anyone who lived in the government. And the children at the daycare center were not important. They were, it was not something that he cared anything about. Uh, they were collateral damage. And he very much viewed himself as a justice warrior. And he was waging war against what he considered to be a, a um, government that was oppressive and evil. And it's that, that dehumanization aspect of targeted violence that is one of the most important clues that you can, um, that you can uh, latch onto. Someone believes or expresses that, that their particular target, that violence is not only warranted, but it is justified that it is right and true, and perhaps the only way to get their point across, that's when you should raise your uh, concern level to, to some of the highest. So uh, we talk about this control, and this is work of Dr. James K. Wood and Dr. Michael uh, Corcoran. In 2009, they talked about how all violent behavior is caused by the need to establish control. 
So the individuals reached a point where they desperately need to establish that control. There's a target for that action uh, that when acted against, they're going to they're going to get that satisfaction. They're going to feel like they have gained control over their um, their potential target. And then the individual believes that they're in an environment which will allow them to act. We also talk about proximate causes. So uh, there's a grievance, and these grievances are almost always irrational. They're not supported by fact, but they attribute their life failings to that grievance. Many of these people are narcissistic. They have grandiose, grandiose uh, uh, self-images and egos, but, and they believe, but for this particular group of people, this government, this person, that they would be able to realize their true, true potential. You also see triggering life events in many of these situations. So there's a change in life circumstances um, that, or a change in their behavior that may signal that impending crisis. Suicidal ideation, many times with someone who has a, a grievance, can portend a homicidal act. So the Secret Service has, um, they were one of the vanguards in, in the literature and the study of uh, mass violence, and, and they've done a number of different works that are out there. Uh, the most recent is the mass attacks in public spaces that looked at active shooter or mass attacks, not just active shooters, because the, the instrumentality of the violence uh, is predominantly by firearms, but not solely limited to firearms. But these mass attacks in public spaces, they looked at a time period from 2016 to 2020, and there were 173 cases that they looked at. And they came up with some, um, some things that we can look for um, in discerning whether this is person is a, is a hunter or a howler. So most of them exhibited these behaviors of concern and to the point that they prompt fear um, for themselves or, or others, that, that others around them in their sphere of influence felt like they were going to harm themselves or someone else. Um, they also had a history of violence. Many of them demonstrated physically aggressive or intimidating behaviors some of which became part of their criminal history, but many did not. Some of them had no criminal history, but when you speak and you interview um, those in their close sphere, they were volatile, they were aggressive, uh, and they could have very intimidating behaviors. 50% of them were motivated to retaliate for grievance, these perceived wrongs. And they could be related to a personal event, domestic violence or domestic relationships, and workplace issues. And most of those had a triggering event that occurred that prompted them to move to action. 25% uh, of the rest of the group were hate-driven. They subscribed to a belief system that involved uh, unfounded conspiracies, hateful ideologies, anti-government, anti-Semitic, uh, and misogynistic views. Uh, they were hate-driven for their targeted group. 
firearms. Most of them did use firearms with many possessing those firearms illegally at the time of the attack. So although laws are there to protect us, those engaged in acts of mass violence don't care. They're about to commit the biggest violation of the law that we can imagine, was, which is the slaughter of innocents. They certainly aren't going to care that they have purchased or obtained or stolen a firearm at the time of their attack. They also have life stressors. Many attackers experience these stressful events in, in their various life domains. These include family and romantic relationships, personal issues, employment. We see when employment ends or the threatened ending of employment, um, those can be those triggering events. Um, also legal issues that are unresolved or they don't feel that they have satisfaction for. And then finally, mental health. Now, mental health, just because you have a mental health issue does not mean that you're going to engage in an act of violence. In fact, we know that uh, individuals who suffer from mental health issues are generally victimized more than they become act, uh, violent offenders. But in this little subgroup, these 173 cases, over half of them experienced some mental health symptoms. And these were either prior to or at the time of their attack, including depression, psychotic symptoms, and that suicidal ideation that I referenced. So let's boil it down just a little bit more. The FBI identified five of the most common indicators uh, of, uh, that were pre-attack behaviors of active shooters. Now they, they focus strictly on the active shooter and this was uh, in their work and that their study group was from 2000 to 2013. So again, having that grievance, again, the reference to the mental health struggles, look at the grievance, 79% had a grievance that they could identify. Uh, the mental health struggles, 62% struggled with depression and anxiety. Um, problematic interpersonal interactions. 57% of the people just couldn't maintain um, what uh, Reed Malloy refers to as a pair bonding, uh, the ability to, um, to have intimate relations with a, a person or, or close intimate friends. Leakage. This is the thing. These are our warning beacons that are out there. Linkage of leakage of intent. 56% telegraphed what they were going to do or that they wanted to engage in an act of violence. And then finally, the reduced quality of thinking or communication was associated with 54%. You heard in the video they referenced the rigid belief system. Um, this has been defined by some uh, researchers in the field as a lack of, of cognitive um, complexity, the inability to see other people's points of view. When you see that rigidity, when you see that someone is just not uh, available to look at other facts and see the world differently, that rigid th thinking coupled with some of these other uh, indicators can signal that you may have an escalating uh, issue that needs to be dealed with, dealt with, excuse me. So 
within the Texas Medical Center, this is a vibrant community. It, it is a city within the city of Houston. Um, and it is a central focal point for um, those in our healthcare community. Of course, the city of Houston has healthcare facilities throughout the greater Houston area. Um, but within the Texas Medical Center, the TMC, that is just such a vibrant period. And the case I want to highlight here today, and we're going to talk about a few others, um, uh, occurred in the Texas Medical Center on Friday, June 20th uh, in 2018. And at 8.47 a.m. on a Friday morning, the Texas Medical Center is hopping. Houston is hot. It is uh, humid. Uh, the, the air is thick and the people moving and commuting in and out of the Texas Medical Center are just as thick. Uh, so it's busy, it's vibrant, and it is in constant motion. And it was in with this framework that uh, Dr. House Connect, uh, cardiologist to uh, international fame, uh, Mark House Connect, he uh, was on his way to work. Um, Dr. House Connect uh, was um, the president's physician, the president's cardiologist, Bush 41. And uh, he was extremely well uh, respected, a gentle soul, a, a Buddhist, uh, a man who believed in the sanctity of life and doing no harm to anyone. This is a man who was commuting to work uh, on his bicycle. And he did this every day. Uh, it, it, his schedule and his rituals and his uh, commutes were well known to everyone. And so in the midst of this day, um, on this Friday, he's on his way to work. When where you see the red line on the map, this from this ivy covered entryway, a bicyclist fell in behind Dr. House Connect and began to follow him along his path. Um, they, um, he went and uh, followed him up Main Street. Again, Main Street's a busy place. Um, there's this wonderful little family from San Antonio, Texas. They were there. Uh, their, their son uh, seen in the front there. He, uh, he was in the Texas Medical Center. He was uh, receiving cancer treatment. And, um, you know, this is a, a busy thoroughfare. They watched the stalker, the bicyclist from behind, shoot and kill Dr. Mark House Connect uh, as Dr. House Connect pedaled to his office. It was an assassination style killing. Dr. House Connect was shot by his killer. As his killer rode past, he shot Dr. House Connect three times two to the chest, one to the head, in a Mozambique-style assassination killing. He made a sharp left turn down Southgate Boulevard just in front of this family. It didn't seem like a bike rage. It didn't seem random or opportunistic. They believed from what they saw that this was a targeted attack. So 
HPD's homicide, uh, our team from the University of Texas Police Department, myself and one of our inspectors and several of our officers converged on the area, not knowing if it was one of our doctors. It was, uh, Dr. House Connect was affiliated with Methodist Hospital, but we responded and we helped and we helped gather information, videos and those kinds of things. And we became part of the investigation. And so, uh, Part of the investigation was to identify, this is the, the young family there talking to Lois Gibson. Lois Gibson is in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for being the most accurate, most successful sketch artist in history. She is amazing. And uh, her sketches began to get the information out to the public because we had nothing to work with at the time. Um, part of the public information uh, talked about Dr. House Connect. It talked about when it happened. And the, the idea and the concept was to get as much information and generate leads to the public as humanly possible. And they created the leads. Um, the public identified, um, because it was able to, to get out so quickly and so efficiently, uh, that some neighbors identified Joey Pappas. Joey Pappas was an avid cyclist, and he had a grudge against a cardiologist working in the Texas Medical Center who had operated on his, on his mother 21 years previously. Now think about that. 21 years he harbored this grievance, but his neighbors knew that he harbored the grievance. His shooting team members knew he harbored a grievance. Anyone that he had contact with knew that he harbored a grievance. And Joey uh, had put together a plan to take out Dr. Mark House Connect to even the score. So the bicycle, this is an interesting piece. Um, uh, Joey was we believe that Joey was on a mission and it wasn't just Dr. House Connect that he was that he intended to target. And the reason for that is Joey reported his bike as being stolen. So if someone um, picked up on or or identified the bike or recognized the bike, he would have a police report that told that his bike was stolen. He did this several days before the assassination. Again, part of his planning and preparation. Uh, that stolen bike was found. It was found in his garage. This is Joey. This is the picture of Joey that was put out to the public and uh, it was captured from neighborhoods. Right after the assassination, he rode through an, uh, a neighborhood and a canvas of the neighborhood uh, produce this video. And you can see the links. You see the little uh, pack, the little blue pack on the back of the bike. You see the cap. Uh, and you see um, it being worn in Joey's head. When HPD executed their search warrant on the house, uh, you, we found that there was very little furniture. Uh, Joey had sold most of the possessions that he owned including some of his prized uh, guns. He was preparing for this final act. And if I can emphasize nothing else, if you have someone 
who is engaged in final act preparation, that is a huge indicator that they are hunting, not howling. Uh, the search warrant also revealed that Joey had uh, put together a dossier on Mark House Connect, and he had put together where he lived, where he worked. He had, um, when we talk about the breach, um, he had actually been stalking Dr. House Connect. He had notes about where he lived, where he worked, and what his schedule was. But there was more to that. Um, the, um, we also found that in addition to the house being prepped, completely ready for someone else to take over, he had his will set out, he had the refrigerator emptied, he had instructions on how to care for the house, but he also had a list, and a list of 88 other healthcare professionals that he had assembled information on, um, some of them very deep dossiers and some of them superficial names and phone numbers. But finding that information put us on high alert that Joey may not be finished. He was out in the community somewhere. He was in hiding, he still had weapons and it appeared he still had grievances that had not been completely addressed. So uh, when we begin to look at uh, the proximate cause, Joey had the grievous, the death of his mother in 1999. Give you a little background about that. Um, we learned that um, Joey's mother had been referred to Dr. House Connect uh, and she was uh, to have an angioplasty in the surgical theater that was contained within Dr. House Connect. He worked with other prominent uh, cardiologists uh, and they had a surgical theater within their professional building. State of the art, best equipment, best training. Um, and, and they would do some of these minor procedures uh, in there. Um, Joey's mom had a heart defect that was um, an anomaly rather rather than a defect, an anomaly in her heart um, that created a complication during the procedure and um, she suffered cardiac arrest. Um, Joey believed that it was the surgeons who didn't want to pay the hospital fees or share some of the profits from these procedures with hospital with the, the hospital across the street. Um, that caused his mother's death. Um, and he grieved on that. Now, Joey couldn't, he, he couldn't have anything other than superficial relationships, superficial friendships. And he attributed all of his life failings to this one event. His mother was his world. Now, it's interesting. Joey couldn't um, maintain jobs before his mother's death nor could he maintain jobs after his mother's death. But what he found in this seminal event was an allegiance with his father, an allegiance he had never had prior to this event. He and his father uh, were going to bring Dr. House Connect down and hold him responsible for the death of his mother. Now, there was no breach of standard of care. There was no 
um, culpability on Dr. Houseconnect's uh, part, the, the conducting the procedure in the, in the surgical theater wouldn't have changed if it had been done in any hospital within the Texas Medical Center. The outcome would have likely been the same. Uh, this was an unusual anomaly in the, the patient's heart, and it couldn't have been foreseen, and it couldn't have been prevented. And Joey and his father had reported Dr. Houseconnect to the medical board. It had been thoroughly reviewed. Every aspect of the event uh, was um, completely analyzed and evaluated and found that Dr. Houseconnect did not deviate from the standard of care. But Joey and his father couldn't sue. Um, uh, Texas is a tort reform state. Uh, the most that they could have recovered is $250,000. And attorneys were not inclined to take the case because they realized that they would have to prove that there was a deviation from standard of care and none could be found. So this grievance Joey latched onto, and it became his world. It was his reason that he couldn't hold a job. It was a reason that uh, he couldn't um, maintain relationships. Everything had been taken away from him, and he became fixated on that. Um, there were opportunities for threat mitigation, and um, to and and we look at these as potentials to dismantle the grievance at the time of the event. When you start to have these irrational people who are tied to a medical procedure, um, look at attacking their grievance, not from a, uh, an emo uh, from a logic point of view, because as we heard in the video, um, these individuals, their, their grievances are irrational. They're not driven by logic. Um, so what you have to do is identify the behaviors of concern. You use every available resource to assemble a complete history of the person. So if they had looked at, the, uh, at Joey, looked at his inability to uh, maintain any type of normal that word was used quite a bit in the video, normal uh, ability to process information, interact with others, um, and you see that there's a deviation from that that he cannot accept, he will not accept, and his demands and his um, uh, holdings in this situation were just completely irrational. That person needs to be on your radar, uh, and you can get to know that. We also would have learned that Joey had a sister who was rational, logical, reasonable, and she could have been set up as a safety beacon. The triggering life event for Joey, he had, his father had passed away, he was alone, he'd exhausted his family fortune, he had about $25 in the bank at the time of the assassination. Uh, he was unable to hold a job and he had coronary heart disease. Now, it was treatable, but Joey was never going to go to another or trust another cardiologist or another doctor with his health care. So he saw his life was nearing an end, the fortune was gone, and now it was time to act. 
Had we known that some of those things and set up the sister as a safety beacon so and had periodic check-ins over time, you could have seen that deterioration. We also could have put Dr. House Connect's office on alert. So if someone is calling the office uh, wanting to know about his scheduling, um, Joey Pappas trying to make a, an appointment with him, or a breach behaviors or approach behaviors showing up unexpectedly, uh, Mark knowing who he was, um, these things could have helped. Using structured judgment tools, these, these help validate um, what your assessment process is. It helps you organize your information, helps you eliminate um, bias from this because it's based on behaviors. And then uh, one of the things that we try to do uh, when dealing with some of these grievances are to construct a soft landing, to try and neutralize a threat. So um, let me counter Dr. House Connect's case. Joey Pappas uh, was found. Uh, he committed suicide when officers moved in for the arrest uh, about two weeks after the murder of Dr. House Connect. So, uh, the case was tragic all the way around. Um, and, and if we had understood what grievances were, when we understood irrational behavior, when we understand some of the risk factors, perhaps we can uh, act or operate differently. And I want to counter that case with uh, a case that we worked on um, uh, where we attempt, and this is where we work, to on grievance mitigation at the time of formation, because we believe that early identification of the grievance, coupled with some proactive intervention strategies, can have an, a massive positive impact downstream. So in this particular case, there was a, 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 the husband of a deceased patient uh, developed a grievance uh, towards the surgeon uh, who tried to save his life, uh, to try to save his wife's life uh, in the cancer center. Um, we first became aware of the grievance when um, the, the husband sent the doctor graphic pictures of his wife's open wounds, post-surgical open wounds, as well as pictures of her in a casket. So we get the case. Think about this and think about how your healthcare um, facility would deal with this type of event that occurs. So the first thing we do is we try and gather as much information as we can. We want to learn about um, the husband. We want to learn about his support systems. We want to learn about where he is, what he's thinking, what he's doing. Gather as much intel as you possibly can. And what we learned from this is that, um, and we'll do interviews with those, not just the medical team, but we'll do it with those in their close sphere of influence. We'll talk to the nurses, we'll talk about the interactions. And what we learned in this particular case was um, uh, the wife had extremely advanced cancer. Um, she had been diagnosed and treated up north. Um, it's closing around October, November uh, in the time of year. Um, the winters were harsh and cold up north where she lived. 
Um, the doctors had told her that they really had exhausted all of their treatment plans. And so they invited, uh, so they explained to the husband that they really needed to prepare for end of life and, and to make her as comfortable as possible. He was unable to accept that. And that's when you have a loved one in that situation, it, that's completely understandable. Um, so he sought out studies and uh, opportunities, anything that he could do to try and extend his wife's life. She didn't want to have her life extended uh, artificially or just for a few months, but he convinced her to come to MD Anderson and uh, enroll in a study and receive um, uh, some surgical, uh, a surgical procedure that might extend her life. It wasn't going to cure her, but it might extend her life. Well, um, the, the surgeon examined all the records, um, had a, a plan um, when he went in and tried to uh, mitigate some of the damage done by the cancer. He found that it was so extensive that there really wasn't anything to be done. And unfortunately, closing the wound was, was not possible. So she had an open wound. She was suffering. He was with her. He blamed himself for bringing her away from her family over the holiday season that was fast approaching and she expired. So how did we approach this? this these are the facts of the case. So how do you begin to address the grievance? Well, we seek to understand those issues and approach it from an empathetic manner, not from, well, you knew what you were getting into, the logic, the last chance, here are the consent forms you signed. That is the exact wrong way to approach this. And I understand that those in our legal community would say that, but we approached it from an empathetic. We wanted to understand where he was. And our investigators reached out and he spoke to them. And the way we reach out is not, well, you sent these things and, and people felt they were threatening. What we did was we said, you, you shared some things and you've expressed some concerns about the doctor and what occurred. Tell us what you're thinking. Tell us your story. And he got to vent. And he filled in the gaps in such an amazing way. He talked about how after his wife's surgery, when it was clear that there was no hope, that the surgeon disappeared, that the surgeon was no longer involved in her care. The surgeon that he had and the family had placed confidence in was no longer there. He didn't understand that the surgeon's job at that point was done and there was a handoff to the palliative care team to try and make things more comfortable. He felt in the, in the surgeon stepping away that the surgeon didn't respect his wife, that she was just another cog in the machinery and that the surgeon didn't care, didn't care that his wife died. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
the surgeon cared deeply. And so what we did was we got with the surgeon and we put the two of them together. Uh, it was a Zoom call. It wasn't a face-to-face. -face. Uh, he was back up north. And the surgeon and the patient's husband got to talk. The surgeon expressed his remorse and his sorrow and, and, and told the husband he felt like he wished he could have been, um, that there was more to do, that, that this, this hurt him deeply to lose a patient um, that meant so much to her family and, and not to be able to help her in the way that he had hoped. And the two of them connected not on a standard of care or not on the legal side, but connected as two human beings who were sharing disappointment and who were sharing grief over the situation. Um, the husband's a good man. And although he was struggling with depression and grief and anxiety, um, he accepted the surgeon's discussion. And we reached out to family members who enveloped him with love and, and help through this, this trying time. And then we went one step further. It looked like everything was going well, but we wanted to make sure that the inroads that we had made to help dismantle this grievance, to diminish the grievance and the, and the sorrow and the loss was, was standing firm. So what we did is as we got within a couple of months of the anniversary of the wife's death, there was another outreach by the surgeon. Hey, I know you're about to cope with another difficult anniversary. I wanted to let you know that I was thinking about you and your family, and I hope it's all is well. Our investigators did the same thing. And you know what we found out? That that simple act of closure, several months preceding, had helped him open his heart up, had helped him re-engage with his family, re-engage with his community, had brought him, helped him deal with his grief in a positive way. And he was actually doing very, very well. He was happy. He was, uh, had made uh, a foray and had started dating someone and things were great. Now, I understand that his psychology and his makeup may have been fundamentally different from Joey Pappas. But it could have been similar, the isolation, the grievance. And so what we want to do is when you have these opportunities, when you see things that are outside the norm, that you address them. And you address them with caring, compassionate outreach. Because you can have extremely positive interactions. Now, what about the other side of that? What about the delusional person, the person who you can't rationalize with, that you can't work with? Are they a hunter or are they a howler? So let's talk about this different case. We'll call this young man John. John was not affiliated with the university. He was not affiliated with the hospital. He had never been a, a patient, but 
MD Anderson is internationally known for their cancer care and treatment. Uh, there are billboards and advertisements all around the city of Houston, and he believed that he had discovered the cure for cancer. He believed that MD Anderson was suppressing the cure for cancer so that they could continue to profit from the misery of all of those who are uh, stricken with the disease. And so he begins to post threatening uh, remarks uh, targeting the president of the university and the president's family, specifically his children. Well, we, we see these threats, we see these kinds of things felt, uh, um, filter through some social media, and we need to discern, is this someone to be concerned about or is this one of those keyboard chaos creators that are out there that just like to lob things. And what we found out about this particular person is looking at his history that not only uh, had he been diagnosed with schizophrenia since a young age, but his disease was so severe that this young man really had multiple touches with uh, law enforcement um, over his young adult life. And he acted out on these delusional beliefs with violence. So here's what we began to, to look at. We saw that he believed that he had a paranoid delusion that he was being followed by the government. So what he did was uh, he was pulling into a shopping center and a Best Buy Geek Squad uh, van pulled in behind him, and he believed that that was proof positive that he was being surveilled. He jumps out of his vehicle and he begins to attack uh, the, the Best Buy truck. Um, the, the driver of the truck fled, um, pocket protectors flying. It was just quite a sight. And thankfully, there was a law enforcement officer uh, who happened to be close in the area, saw the predicament, saw John beating on this vehicle, uh, and he took him into custody. John is also a barber by trade, and John was flying his trade after being released uh, uh, in the previous case uh, from uh, mental health care. And there was a man of who appeared to, in the next chair, who appeared to be of Middle, uh, Middle Eastern descent. And John, having a paranoid delusion that this man was a terrorist, he was going to protect his country, and he began to attack the man with his pair of scissors. Thankfully, law enforcement were close by, a Secret Service agent who was off duty um, was able to intervene and take John into custody. So, when now his delusion is directed at the president of our university and his family, based upon, as was previously referenced, uh, it's not predictive, but it is a concern when delusional behaviors are acted out upon uh, in an act of violence. So we began to work on this, uh, this case. So what we did was we began to identify his behavior patterns, uh, and we began to draw on uh, resources. We, we got the police reports, 
Uh, we looked at his contacts with um, uh, law enforcement as well as the mental health providers. We talked to his mom uh, and she was so grateful to have someone on her side who was going to try and help. And uh, she talked about the fact that she had lost jobs, she had lost connections with other family members over John's behavior. Uh, she had had homes destroyed as he pulled copper and wires out of the walls, believing that he was being surveilled and anything she could do to, to get some help. So we were able to get enough for a mental health warrant based upon his actions, his threats, uh, and he received a 45-day commitment in a uh, inpatient mental health care. And what we, they were able to do is stabilize and get him on a medication regime. When we looked at the pat at the um, um, pattern of behavior, we discovered something very interesting. John would not take pills. He believed pills were poison, but he would take injections, uh, which is odd and in itself, but he was getting his injections on a monthly basis. He was falling into psychotic episodes at the three-week mark. Well, it was pretty easy when we gave the healthcare providers what the pattern of behavior was. They adjusted his medication schedule for injections every two weeks, and he stabilized. We also provided him an alternate focal point to his, dilute, uh, to his behavior. Instead of the president and his family, we in law enforcement, the investigators became his focal point. We were with him, we tracked him, we worked with him, we talked to him, we had meetings with him. We, uh, we be began to take his focus away from them. They are not the ones holding you back. We are the ones who are in charge of getting your mental health treatment, doing the mental health warrants, getting you the inpatient care. Um, this new medication regime, the intense work of the investigator on the connection points, uh, the development of an early warning system, John's mom, she became, we also had uh, tagged his social media account so we could see when he was beginning to uh, engage in the delusional, uh, irrational thinking, we could monitor those, and they became our safety beacons. And they became uh, a, a mechanism for us to maintain long-term monitoring and be able to pick up on those cues, those concerns. And John has not given us another problem since we were able to put these pieces in place. Uh, when he begins to struggle, we are able to engage the mental health services and adjust medications with the, uh, the, the healthcare teams, get them to adjust the medications as needed, uh, and he has done well. And uh, that case has been stabilized now going on three years. So we feel pretty good that that is um, a way to work. So threat intervention, it's a multidisciplinary approach. You saw how we worked with the mental health care facilities. We, we have a multidisciplinary team, and the threat assessment process is fairly simple. You identify, you get all the information you can, you make inquiries where necessary, you assess the information you have, and you develop that, um, that strategy to manage um, that particular issue. And 
the process repeats itself when the situation or behavioral changes show you that what you're doing is not working any longer or that there's a regression in some way. But this is the thoughtful, reasoned, thoughtful, uh, or the reasoned and thoughtful management that we try to impose on every case in looking for that thread, that nexus to get us off. So how do you begin? How do you do this? Because violence prevention is possible. Safety is everyone's responsibility. You heard it referenced, see something, say something, but go beyond that. Tell people what to look for. What are behaviors of concern? When should you report? Educate your community on when to say something, and then more importantly, who to tell it to. Uh, you need to tell those who are responsible for receiving the reports, you've got to train them. You've got to train them in threat assessment and management processes. As I promised, I can't make you a threat assessor in a, in a 30, 45 minute discussion or presentation, but what I can do is introduce you to the literature introduce you to the resources that are out there and available for you and your healthcare team to take advantage of. You need to engage with your mental health providers and your threat assessment team members. Look at those issues and sometimes the answer will become self-evident once you begin to delve in and understand the, the root cause of the grievance, the root cause of the issue that is making this person target a particular individual. And I cannot emphasize this, emphasize this enough, the multidisciplinary approach. You can be the smartest person in the room. You can be the smartest person in almost every room you walk into, but you will never be as smart or have the information base that is available in the collective. Put together a good, solid core team, bounce ideas off of one another, challenge one another, and work collaboratively to dismantle these people who are on that pathway to violence. And I know we've covered a lot of territory. Who's a hunter? Who's a howler? The behavioral cues that you have at your disposal are there if you understand how to recognize them, if you understand how to use them. And if you don't know, have an escalation process or protocol in place to engage those experts in the field to help you mitigate threat and get off the pathway to violence and on the pathway to safety. Vicki, thank you so much. Man, that, you know, uh, I am just amazed at uh, what a terrific uh, educator you are. We just uh, we just love having you speak. I've learned so much every time I I listen to you, and um, uh, and I just think consider it a, just a huge blessing to have you speak to us again. Um, I just want to uh, uh, introduce and reintroduce uh, Bill Adcox uh, to our group, and he's going to kind of build on what you've said and and uh, have a conversation here. Uh, Bill is the Chief Security Officer of MD Anderson Cancer uh, Center and the Chief of Police working with uh, Vicki. He is the co-founder of the MedTAC 
Bystander Rescue Care Program, a co-author of the papers that we discussed earlier in one of the videos, which are incidentally are posted on the website. And we've had some requests on the information that we shared, and we'll have the link to the video. And we've already posted the video or posted the uh, the documents from the federal government that I think are just excellent. But uh, Bill, uh, we want to just thank you for uh, helping us uh, today and commenting uh, and building on what uh, Vicki has said, because you have been uh, just a path pathfinder, Bill, uh, in this area of threat safety science. And as we expanded our community of practice from just medical centers to actually higher education, um, we're seeing an enormous opportunity to really collaborate with so many organizations that are really wrestling with and Vicki, as you and I have discussed recently, the people in, in patient safety and quality and risk and C-suite and uh, administrators are really having to learn things from the ground up. And, and I think that's why uh, I really appreciate this uh, program and what you've shared with us today with some real live case studies. Bill, your thoughts and what would you like to build on what Vicki has shared with us? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham, for having us on the program. And, and again, once again, Vicki, thank you. Vicki is really a pioneer and a trailblazer in this area, and it's just so much that everyone can learn from her and, and, and as we go forward. One of the, there's a few things that I would I would say. Um, number one is this is a this is a constantly evolving uh, art and profession, and we're learning every day. And so keep you know you have to just keep up with what's going on. But one of the things that 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 uh, I will tell you that's very key is that early identification. And that proactive multidisciplinary approach uh, is very critical. If you keep that, that particular principle in the back of your mind, and just know that if you teach people to look at our fellow human beings and look for a change in their baseline, if all of a sudden there's something changing and they're not, they're not the same person they were, that's usually one of, the, one of the first signals that something may be going on so that you, even as a friend, can, look, can reach out and find out you know, if, if, if you need to get involved and get engaged and, and get some help. The other thing I would tell you is, is that this is this whole process is not a one and done. There's going to constantly be a change. There's going to be things that are happening, whether it's triggers, there's different inhibitors, hopefully, that will come into place. But the bottom line is, is that these individuals and people that are in that are in crisis, they're going to go up and down. It's going to continue to change. Something's going to happen as time goes on. So Again, there's flare-ups, there's regression, there's changes. So remember, you just have to continuously follow up on this and just keep your eyes open. And as, as Vicki so elegantly said, it is a multidisciplinary. You have to have these different lenses. You have to have different people looking at it. And we all have to come together and, and work very closely together. And one of the things I will tell you that Vicki and I learned very early was when you're working with the younger uh, and I say with with people that are younger in life, let's say let's just go through through high school or even K through 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 twelve. One of the things to remember is 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 when you're talking to this group is you need to focus on teaching uh, our our younger population that uh, that that everybody's got issues and that they need to look for these issues. They look for certain behaviors. You need to teach them what to look for and 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 how do you care for your fellow person. And if they aren't truly your friends, what to look for. And number two, and probably the most important is by bringing this to the right people's attention, and that's this non-prosecution, non-law non enforcement type related, but this group of multidisciplinary group that's out there to help their fellow human being, 
if you if you teach them that they need to bring it forward to it is helping them it is absolutely helping them and it's not snitchy because a lot of the a lot of the younger mentality and people think well i don't want to call in on somebody because it's snitchy a lot of times they don't know what to call on they think it's minor it's nothing or it's just it's just the way they are so it's very important that we become much more educated that we have early identification have a multidisciplinary team we can turn to and that we don't give up on it. And the last thing I will tell you, and, and again, Vicki says this so elegantly, be, just use a deep compassion and do everything you can to give people soft landings, give them an opportunity to save face, give them the dignity that everybody deserves. Do not write somebody off as irrational. Do not write them off and say, hey, legally you're cut off, get out of here, get out of my life. Hey, here's a cease and desist letter. Like that's really going to cut it. That doesn't cut it. Sometimes it just it just flares it up. Let's work together on this. Let's get better at it, and and then and let's just share this information, just like Vicky shared so very much. And I deeply appreciate it, Vicky, and thank you so very much. And we want to finish on time for those of you that are earning continuing medical education and continuing uh, uh, education units for nursing and risk management education units. And so I'll ask each of you just one more quick question. We'll release you. And then uh, for our extended session, we'll hear from Randy Steiner regarding higher education and then also our emerging threat community of practice and invite those of you that qualify that uh, are at organizations and can qualify. We'd like to have you join our community of practice and share uh, the information. Vicki, you and I talked uh, in the last couple of days about uh, competency currency, a term that Dr. Boats and I use quite a bit. Um, uh, I'm a pilot. We we know that I'm certified, but I'm not legal unless I'm verifying my competency. We're taking our whole team through CPR, AED, and uh, Stop the Bleed training again because we know that these are perishable skills. Vicki, competency currency as we're in this threat management area, and then maybe Bill, and then we'll wrap up and hear from uh, Jenny Dingman. Right. Um it's not a one and done situation. I learn from every case we work on uh, about the nuances, things that work, things that don't work. Um, there are characteristics. And when we are confronted with a roadblock or an impasse or things are not uh, gelling in the way they should, we will escalate that up to other experts in the field. Uh, we'll reach out and we'll consult with, um, and, and, you know, sometimes they're paid consultants and, you know, I, I understand that there are budgetary constraints, but there are also free consultants out there. The, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the JTTF run by the FBI, uh, Homeland Security also has resources. You saw some of the things that our federal government has put out uh, and they will help you if you are uh, tracking someone that you believe is engaged in targeted violence. There, uh, so maintaining your competency uh, is, is it's a constant learning environment. No one is going to have all the answers, and that goes to the multidisciplinary approach. And there's a question in the chat from Kaylin Lewis, and uh, Kaylin says, do you have any suggestions on how to create agreements with police for support of health centers during incidents involving aggressive patients or mental health crisis? Well, 
if you wait until you've got a bad situation to reach out to law enforcement, you're going to get an arrest model. If you are proactive and you build relationships with law enforcement leaders and help them understand that healthcare is a critical infrastructure that needs their support, and you ask for your law enforcement agency to invest in threat assessment, invest in uh, and dedicate resources to evaluating some of these cases and learning about it. The federal government provides free training for to become a master uh, threat assessment trainer, the train the trainer model. You have, there are opportunities there, low cost or virtually no cost. You can also sponsor as a healthcare organization um, your law enforcement team to be members of the Association for Threat Assessment Professionals, ATAP. ATAP gives free training once you're a member every month and you're invited to go to any chapter anywhere in the United States doing a presentation on threat assessment. The training's there. The training is low cost or almost no cost. And uh, that's how you maintain your currency. You can't just get it one and expect to be done. Fantastic. Bill, any uh, concluding thoughts there or anything you wish to add? Uh, yeah, just going back to the question. Yes, work with your local police. If you have to, you, you know, maybe you can engage in, in actually sit down and have some understandings ahead of time, get what we call MOUs, memorandums of understanding, or maybe even interlocal government agreements if you're both government, but to get some things in place so that you really have the ground floor or the, or the framework in place ahead of time. Uh, I think that's important. The other thing is, remember, the, 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 the laws, the constitution, everything else is set up so that it's very strict. Unless you can prove someone did something, you don't take an action. So what happens is I, I, I as, as, as law enforcement, I cannot take action against you because I think you're dangerous. I think you're going to do something. So there it becomes in a different area where you go into the civil areas of restraining orders, maybe protective orders, things that you can do that, that have, have their, own, their own complications and, and are effective in their own way. This is not minority report. So you have to have that multidisciplinary team where you're looking at all the parts and pieces where you're looking at things that are way outside of law enforcement. Law enforcement, absolutely critical component of that team. Law enforcement understands people. Law enforcement has access to data and access to information. Law enforcement can act in case something really bad is, is going down. So you really have to have that multidisciplinary team in place in order to do that. Hospitals should be working with their local police, their security, uh, it, everything that you can think of, put it together, have that framework in place in advance to, to, to have it work. And again, Vicki just gave you a good, a good rundown of some, some resources that are out there. The last thing I'll leave you with, and this is something that my colleague Vicki brought up a long time ago when we're working with the smaller hospitals that really don't have a lot of financial resources. Sometimes you can actually uh, pull your resources, work with your local police department, say, listen, we'll pay for some training for your police officers in the investigative area that, that if, as long as you're committed to starting a, a, a movement towards threat management within your police department. So if you pay for like a grant or you pay for some type of training through one of these organizations, and then you begin that MOU and that, that relationship, sometimes that's the way to do it when there's just not a lot of quote unquote financial standing to do that. 
larger, bigger cities have a little bit more resources. A lot of the smaller cities or the rural areas, they're struggling. So not one size fits all, but you can be creative. And to, frankly, there's many of us that are out there that's willing to help you at any time because it's the right thing to do. And again, thank you for having us on your program. Well, thank you both. Uh, we really appreciate it. We'll release you so that we'll get, let you get back to your great work there at Anderson. Uh, we are going to close with uh, our the wise words from our uh, patient advocate, our patient champion for uh, patient safety and quality. And then in the extended session, for those of you that are on the podcast, you'll hear from Randy Steiner, who's the, uh, the director of emergency response at the University of California, Irvine, and also our emerging threat uh, video on the community of practice. And if you'd like to join, you'll be able to, uh, to learn how to do that. But we really, really appreciate both of you so much. And uh, what an honor. And uh, uh, Vicki, this is uh, just so helpful at a pretty, pretty important time in our country's history. So we really uh, look forward to uh, really applying these principles. And thank you, Bill, for your, your continued guidance as a threat safety scientist. We both I uh, think you all are just really uh, contributing to things. And in this building of the work, Vicki, that you've described, much of what's in the literature is not really addressing a lot of what we're seeing in social media now and AI. And so there's a lot more to be done in the R&D area for those of us at major medical centers. So thank you again, and, and uh, we appreciate uh, your help. That was really a great program today. Thank you to all of our speakers for all of the knowledge and wisdom that you're giving to us. Again, I want to thank all of our participants for being here today and encourage you to please share the recordings with your friends, families, and colleagues. Looking forward to next month, and God bless everyone here. Thank you, Jenny, and thank you for your steadfast support of uh, the areas of safety and quality. And as we expand to uh, higher education, we know that we always uh, close with, we, want, we need to fight the good fight. Uh, we need to finish the race and we need to keep the faith. And these are uh, great compass headings for us to continue to focus because everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. And uh, we're really seeing that in higher education as well as we look at the systemic disorders that, uh, uh, that are going on there. Now, uh, for those of you that uh, will uh, are wrapping up with us for CEU and CME credits, we appreciate your attendance. And what we'll be doing now is we'll be going to uh, our uh, leader of uh, the uh, University of California, uh, Irvine, um, uh, and uh, he is uh, uh, a um, uh, fantastic uh, resource. He is a, uh, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, leader uh, here in the California area where, uh, where I live uh, and a best-selling author. So Randy Steiner uh, will ad address this issue that we've just discussed for about 10 minutes, and then we'll show our emerging threats community of practice and then wrap up for our longer session. Randy Steiner is the Director of Emergency Preparedness at the University of California, Irvine. He's a best-selling author and has been a long-standing community leader in bystander rescue care. Randy, thank you so much for helping us today. Can you give us a perspective on higher education and the howling and hunting and why it's so important to follow these uh, persons of interest? Well, yeah, uh, you, know, you look at the, uh, the data from 
uh, shootings that have occurred in the past in, in institutes of higher education, you know, there's uh, oftentimes there have been, you know, the warning signs a lot of times in the investigations following we found, um, you know, social media posts or, or other, you know, threatening behavior on behalf of the or on the, the part of the shooters, you know, so there, there were those warning signs that kind of goes with the, uh, you know, that howler mentality and that, you know, that's why it's important to take those seriously. You know, there have been cases in, in multiple universities across the country where, you know, um, disgruntled students or, or, you know, faculty or staff, you know, have made threats against the university and then, you know, law enforcement in some cases followed up with that threats and actually found weapons and ammunition and, you know, intent to, to, to potentially, you know, cause harm at the university. Uh, that happens all over in higher education. You know, it shows the importance, first of all, of, you know, uh, the, the the law enforcement in higher ed to be really wired into that social media world to kind of find those, you know, those those potential threats. Um, you know, but that's that's really based on that that howler, you know, uh, mentality that people are going to start, you know, first making threats, trying to get attention potentially, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, uh, notice of their cause, whatever that is, whatever wrong they, they perceive happened to them. Um, but, you know, there's definitely, we've seen time and time again, there's transitions from that, that, you know, howling mentality into taking action and going into that, that puncher mode. Um, you know, at the same time, we look at say Michigan state, you know, that was a, that was a hunter. They, you know, that, that, that person, there's really no indication that they were planning to commit violence. They, but, a university, especially a public university, is an open space. It's an area that, you know, anybody who wants to commit that level of violence has access to and can come in and, and use it as a, as a target. Um, you know, that's uh, from a university perspective. That's why we really need to, you know, look at the security apparatus that's available to us. You know, universities should continually do physical security assessments. They should, uh, you know, reassess their their security apparatus. Um, obviously, keeping track of you know behavior and and you know you know from people on campus, anybody who's saying, "Hey, this person's acting kind of weird," they got to take that seriously. Uh, you know, obviously you know, the, the, the howlers kind of, you know, project what their intent may be. And sometimes it's, that's, you know, they're just, that's what they're doing. They're just making noise and, and trying to, you know, make a point about what they're doing and using, you know, threats of violence to kind of emphasize what they're doing, even though there, there may be no intention of doing that. But like I said, many of these shooters, shootings that happened, not just in higher ed, but, but all over, you know, there were, there were warning signs. Um, you know, that, that, that weren't followed up by law enforcement or by other authorities. Um, you know, so that transition is there. Anybody who is willing to go out into social media or other, you know, uh, mediums to, to threaten violence, you know, against any institution, that's serious. And, you know, time and time again, we've seen that that transition occurs. So I think it's really in the best interest, not only higher education, but but any institution that, that is potentially vulnerable. We're talking about hospitals, we're talking about uh, corporate campuses, uh, you know, anything that's a potential target. First, you need to 
recognize that you are a target, um, you know, maybe even a target of opportunity. You know, maybe the, the person has no beef with your particular, you know, institution, but they know that there's say an opportunity there to commit an act of violence or multiple acts of violence and and make a you know that big splash um you know and and, and get the attention that 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 they want um you know obviously the the howler mentality is is one of it but the hunter you know identifying them is obviously much tougher and and is more has to be you know mitigated at the time of the potential attack so, so Randy, you know, as we compare medical centers and hospitals uh, to our universities, you've got enormous turnover. You've got 55,000 people flowing through there every day. You can't rely on guns, gates, and guards to uh, protect them because you're so porous and there's just so much. And then you have incredible turnover every year. Um, it's got to be pretty challenging to put a, a multidisciplinary cross-functional team together. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, we but we we do have those teams. I mean, there are resources out there. We work very closely with our assessment center, Orange County Assessment Center, and our our, our joint regional information center, our fusion centers. Um, you know, we're our 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 law enforcement, our emergency management apparatus. We're tied into them. Um, we get bulletins. You know, from those those levels. Then and, and and that level of of monitoring on sort of a, a regional wide uh, basis is is pretty effective you know in finding those potential threats much more than you know a police department in a university doesn't you know they may have some level of of capability when it comes to you know being able to track those threats um but it's most of those police departments aren't really huge you know that most of them are 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 patrol officers um, you know, now we do have, you know, our, our, you know, teams on campus, our consultation teams that, you know, who, if a student comes and says, hey, I, this, this other student or, or person that they know is acting really weird and saying, you know, weird things and, you know, potentially is a threat, you know, those teams do come together, they assess those, the, you know, those threats, they meet with the students. And if they determine that there is something, you know, sort of a, a little hinky about it, then they let law enforcement know and, you know, potentially serve a warrant on the person's house. And and in, in many institutions, that's, you know, found, you know, illegal weapons and caches of ammunition and things that really were, you know, pretty scary of people who are actively making threats. And yet, you know, now they're gathering the tools that they need to carry those threats out. So you know, having those partnerships on a regional level, I think is, is really important, especially, and you, you hit it right on the head. It's a, you know, a public university is a porous institution. You know, we have people that drive through UCI every day on their way to work. You know, it's, it's part of their commute. Um, you know, so it, it's in terms of, of, you know, screening that threat, it's very difficult to do. So we really need to, you know, um, really focus on, you know, active shooter training and, and getting people, you know, first of all, if something does happen, to give them the tools to protect themselves. We need to, you know, stock up on on stop the bleed supplies and and you know, God forbid we ever have to deploy those. But at least, you know, if it does happen, having that upper level of of you know bystander care and our ability to potentially save lives after an incident is a big deal. Of course, we want to be left to boom on this. You know, so having the security apparatus in place to detect those kind of attacks 
or, or you know, definitely to, to minimize the damage, having, you know, shot spotter systems and, you know, a really uh, well-trained police force that, that is, is equipped and able and has the knowledge to to quickly respond and, and mitigate those threats is, is very important as well. But in terms of, you know, can we 100% mitigate the threat? We can't. That's that's just not not a fact with, with institutes of higher education, especially in public settings. Well, Randy, uh, la last comment and question is that uh, we've been working with you all for years and want to compliment you on embracing the three minutes from drop to shock for sudden cardiac arrest and three minutes from gunshot to stop the bleed within three minutes. Um, was this hard to get through senior management to say we really need to do it? And were there catalyzing events that helped that uh, momentum getting get, uh, get forward? No, there it really wasn't. Not at, not at UCI. We you know, um, we were able to you know, really build off the the you know, unfortunately, incidences that had happened in other spots of the country, and realizing you know we should really look and see what our vulnerabilities are. Um, you know, I was embraced at the highest levels of of the institution at UCI and and fully supported. You know, when we conducted our our campus wide security assessment, you know, we looked at over 600 spaces on campus in terms of large classrooms and buildings, exteriors of buildings, looking at, you know, screening and escape routes and, you know, what kind of doors and windows exist in those, those spaces and how can we secure those spaces? Um, you know, our camera systems, how can we better improve our monitoring capability on campus? Um, and, you know, being able to track who's coming in and out of campus, uh, you know, our key card card systems, those kind of things. So we, we're, we're really looking at that from a, a, a comprehensive level campus-wide. And yeah, the support from our leadership has been been outstanding. There's There's been no resistance at all in terms of, of looking at this and, and getting an assessment done. Well, Randy, thank you so much. And we're excited this summer to work with you on mapping rescue routes from victims that might have one of these uh, these uh, uh, problems that bystander care uh, can help. And we look forward to doing that with you with the uh, multiple institutions and come back and tell the story. So thanks for your commitment to do that. Of course. Thank you, Chuck. And so now we will cover our emerging threats community of practice for those of you that are attending our long, uh, longer extended uh, session, and then we'll wrap up. Hi, I'm Dr. Charles Denham. Today's briefing is on a topic that we think might be important to you. We have launched a private community of practice for medical center and university leaders by identifying emerging threats that are increasingly challenging their medical centers and universities today, from workplace violence to cybersecurity and nation state influence, to patient safety issues of errors of omission and misdiagnosis, to academic fraud, conflict of interest, defamation, drug diversion, and critical medication shortages. Epidemics and pandemics, such as the COVID crisis, and preventable deaths and serious injuries of students and staff on or off-site. The number one risk keeping our top leaders up at night is the potential damage to their brand, which is increasingly vulnerable to these emerging threats. Some of the most unappreciated challenges are insider threats that come in many forms. 
They range from rare intentional harm to very common systemic breaches of ethics by mid-level managers, risk managers, and senior leaders to protect an organization, such as when medical errors and accidents or lethal threat management errors are covered up. Such breaches can generate enormous harm to patients, staff, students, and the community. Security, administrative, clinical, research, and governance leaders from our most highly ranked universities and academic, regional, and specialty medical centers are working together to address these emerging threats and confidentially share best practices with each other. The program is hosted by the Global Patient Safety Forum, run by TMIT, a 501c3 medical research organization. It is invitation only and has no commercial purpose. It is funded by private family philanthropy, as was the original LeapFrog Group survey, also developed by TMIT, and uses the same approach. Founded in 1984, TMIT Global leads the longest-running global patient safety community of practice in the world. By the end of 2023, it will have delivered more than 600,000 hours of continuing education and continuing risk education during more than 200 consecutive monthly broadcasts over more than a decade. During the COVID crisis, it produced 30 monthly 90-minute Survive and Thrive Guide broadcasts. These were recorded as online videos and podcasts for the families of essential critical workers. Our network of more than 80,000 clinical, administrative, and financial healthcare leaders has been continuously surveyed for satisfaction, requests for safety content, and priorities. They have driven the direction of the curriculum, shared best practices, and given us a head start on all-cause threats. Using the same approach, our emerging threat community of practice does not, nor will it ever receive direct indirect or affiliated financial support of any kind from the healthcare industry. Threat safety science is a new discipline for higher education organizations and healthcare that harnesses much of what we've learned from successful patient safety programs. It takes a systemic approach to specific threats by reducing vulnerability through increasing resilience and thereby reducing the risk of harm. Harm to those we serve, those who serve, and our property both physical and virtual. Those we serve are our patients and their families and our students and their loved ones. Those who serve are our students, educators, caregivers, professional administrators, faculty, and their staff and researchers. Our property is both physical and virtual, such as intellectual property, information systems, digital operations, and medical records. There are also our reputations that are at risk from the explosive impact of misinformation that is now broadcasted over the internet. Misinformation that is instant, searchable, and permanent. Threats to those we serve, those who serve, and our property may originate from outside sources, inside sources, or a mixture of both. Some are man-made threats and other are natural. For a given threat, the goal is to decrease vulnerability and increase resilience. Mathematically, this reduces the risk of incidents and the magnitude of the harm they generate. Threat velocity, or the speed at which these threats are challenging our leaders, is accelerating and making it ever harder to keep up. This demands that we collaborate with others and share what we learn. The problem is that the threat spectrum is very much like the electromagnetic spectrum. It's comprised of both visible and invisible components. Like an iceberg, although many of the threats are above the waterline, visible and easy to spot, many of them are invisible and are hidden under the waterline. We're unaware of them until we're surprised when they cause harm. It's helpful to have a set of operational definitions to help classify harm during the process of care. 
unintentional harm to students and visitors and patients by caregivers and administrators, such as errors of commission, errors of omission, and harm due to recklessness are very much different than those that are intended to harm. Although much of preventable harm can be linked to the actions of our people, the majority are system faults and errors of omission, not errors of commission, which up until now have been the focus of our patient safety experts. A small minority are due to recklessness, such as actors knowingly violating procedures and taking shortcuts, and when so-called enablers ignore such behaviors and allow care to be compromised. Thankfully, even fewer are actions overtly intended to cause harm, which we call red coat crime, that are often sensationalized by the press. This video introduces a survey of medical center leaders regarding critical emerging threats. Those surveyed may at their option decide to join our community of practice tackling these issues, or those surveyed may just request the survey summary of insights from their colleagues be sent to them. Anyone can limit their participation to just the survey alone. The survey is of leaders in security, administrative, clinical, risk, compliance, occupational safety, and patient safety roles of the top-ranked universities and medical centers. The goal is to inventory and prioritize emerging threats and measure our leaders' interests and best practices. Our global emerging threat community of practice will be focused on understanding, developing, and adopting the best practices using world-class methods of prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. These activities include online webinars, on-demand training, case study development and discussions, white papers, in-person meetings, and the use of assessment tools. The community has been developed using the 5C innovation model we've used with Google, the World Health Organization, and the LeapFrog Group enabled by multimedia and the IHI All Teach All Learn model that has been used so successfully in performance improvement. We convene invited leaders, connect them in whatever manner they wish, celebrate the great work they are already doing, co-create new concepts, tools, and resources that can be provided to the entire group, and over time seek to impact change through them, their regions, and hopefully the world. Some organizations just take our survey and receive the private aggregated results, and that's enough. Others get more actively involved in collaborating. Organizations are allowed to move their level of participation up or down at any time. For skiers used to the symbology, level one is like the green slopes, where those who want to participate may do so at the most minimal level, may passively observe, participate in webinars and online content, even remain anonymous if they wish, and they may just have one representative participate. Level two is an intermediate stage. It includes the learning at the first level and adds to that initiating an internal training program to address one or more of the emerging threats. They also will have the option of sharing data. At the more comprehensive Level 3, an organization that is operating at Levels 1 and 2 may want to add local outreach and training to those in their region or ecosystem. They may want to do some limited emerging threat R&D. And finally, at Level 4, certain organizations may want to become a global center of excellence, undertake more comprehensive emerging threat R&D, and even become a global education center that others want to visit so that they can watch and learn. This is the double black diamond level. The leaders from our top-ranked medical centers and universities, as well as the global subject matter experts in emerging threats who contributed to the design of our work and community of practice, invite you to join this cause, the cause of preventing harm to those we serve, those who serve, and our property, both physical and virtual. The information that is shared remains private and confidential. 
It is only shared with the participants as an aggregated summary. You may find more information and see our team at the Global Safety Forum website at www.globalpatientsafetyforum.org. Please join us. So we'd like to thank you for attending today. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you next month. And if you uh, uh, do attend, uh, I think we will cover how to collaborate with local law enforcement, whether you're a university or whether you're a medical center or a small rural hospital. And we'll cover kind of that, the, the uh, continuum of whether you're large in an integrated system or whether you're small and you really need to, to do it in the local area. So we thank you for your attendance and we look forward to seeing you next month.